And you know, the Bible tells us in different times what God has been up to. Like, God has revealed himself in his word, and in his word we find out that he created the world, that he spoke it into existence. In his word we find out about the Garden of Eden. We wouldn't know about it otherwise. Or the flood of Noah, or the Tower of Babel. The Bible is what tells us that God is from everlasting to everlasting. The Bible is what tells us about God's attributes and his activities, who he is and what he's done. Like we learn about that from the word of God. Everything we know about God has been revealed to us in scripture in terms of what needs to be known for salvation. And yet still, there are things we just don't understand. We know that God parted the Red Sea and allowed a million people, the Jewish people, to walk through it on dry ground. We know that he did that, but we really don't understand how he did that as a miracle. We know that God caused his people to be able to be healed from snake bites by looking at a bronze serpent. Like like by looking at it, they were healed. We know that he did it, but we don't know how that worked. We know that God is eternal, but we may not understand how that works out. You ever lay in your bed at night and said, how did God never start? How will God never finish? What existed before God? Well, I know the Bible tells me nothing. How does that work? And sometimes we just see those things are like, God, I just don't understand that, but I know it to be true. Because if something happened before God, God would no longer be God. Well, today we are going to dive into something that is a bit of an ocean of mystery. It is a part of the Bible where you're like, God, I know it's here, but I don't understand it. I want us, this is, this is my first point, we're not even in the text yet, but I really want to, to push this home. I want us to be able to praise God for what we do know and to trust him with what we don't. Y'all with me? I want us to be able to praise God for what we do know and to trust him for what we don't. Or maybe another way, I want us to praise God for what we do understand and to trust him with what we don't understand. Because there are things about God that we won't know and understand. But God's like, I've told you everything you need to know, and there are some things you just don't need to know. There are some things that you can't know because you are confined to time and space as a finite being, and I am an eternal God who's not subject to the way things you live in. So I need you to trust me for what you don't know and don't understand. And so that's what we got to do when we come to passages like we're diving into today. Today we're jumping back into the book of Romans, which is by far, according to so many, the greatest letter ever written. It teaches us doctrine. It teaches us about God. And we've said this is a doctrine that will make you dance. It is the kind of truth that puts you on the move. But today, the doctrine we're going to talk about is one of those ones where we're like, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. Today, we are talking about God's electing of some to salvation. 
Today we're talking about God's choosing of some to be his children, of God's sovereign decree, his sovereign plans. We're talking about that because the Bible is talking about it. And I have a mandate upon me as a preacher of the word to preach the whole counsel of God. And so when we come to passages that are a little difficult to understand, we submit to the passage and don't jump around it. We walk into it instead of avoiding it. And then there are times where we just say, God, this is what I know, but I'm going to trust you with what I don't know. So today we are going to jump into the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. You know, I, I, in all honesty, I had a lot of trepidation this week in, this, in my preparation for this. But as the week progressed, and he's even into yesterday, I felt more excitement. Because I know today we're talking about questions that you've had. I know we've all wondered, how does God's sovereignty align with my responsibility And Romans 9 gives us a snapshot of some of what that all looks like. So if you can join me by standing to your feet, I'm going to read the opening half of this chapter, even though we'll be preaching more than what I read. But this is what God's word tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. It's Paul writing, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, watch this, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Say it. Amen. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved But Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word, church. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we submit to it, God. God, we confess there are times and texts that we just say, Lord, I don't fully understand this, but I'm going to trust you with what I don't understand. Today, we're diving into this ocean, Lord, and we're asking for insight, for understanding, that we would be able to hold together the paradoxes that your scripture has, the mysteries that you have, and that we would say yes and amen to them, God. Lord, shape and mold us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all, we're in for for a good one here. Um, The book of Romans up to this point has been able to unpack for us how God saves people. We have seen that all of us from birth have been separated from God, but that God in his mercy, though we deserve his wrath and justice and judgment, he sent Jesus to come live a perfect life and then on the cross pay the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He took it for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We've seen that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but we can be saved through faith in Jesus alone. And we're told in Scripture that those whom God saves, he keeps us. Like there ain't nothing you can do to lose God once he has saved you. When the Holy Spirit enters you, he says, I'm making my home in you, I'm going to seal you, and I'm never leaving. We're told that in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel that Romans is teaching us. But then Paul comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's like, but what do we make of the fact that God's chosen people, Israel, have rejected the Messiah. If they were chosen, how have they rejected? Paul Paul is is here saying, I'm going to unpack some things for you. But he opens up saying, he's like, I'm not lying in verse 1. He says, my my conscience bears me witness that I have great sorrow, verse 2, and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's saying, I have so much sorrow within me over this fact. That my people by ethnicity, the Jews, have rejected in large part Jesus as their Messiah. Paul says, it hurts me so bad. And this blows me away. He says this in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for them. Uh, Let's just put it in plain words. Paul's saying, if I could exchange my eternal soul in order that I would be judged, but they would be saved, I would do so because I love them that much. Now, of course, Paul is speaking in the world of hypothetical because that can't be possible. But what he's essentially saying is, this is how deep my heart grieves over the fact that my people, the Jews, have rejected Jesus. I want you to understand something. This chapter and the rest of these next two or three chapters talk a lot about some heavy theology. But we should never talk theology as if it's displaced from compassion in our hearts. 
Like we should never talk ideas without grieving over their implications. Paul's like, man, some have rejected Jesus and I cry over that. I'm going to talk about what God is doing in all this, but it grieves me, Paul says. Paul's in anguish. And church, you and I ought to be in anguish over people who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. It should keep us up at night. We should feel as Paul here. He's not talking about something disconnected from his heart, but something that's crucial to his heart. When we talk about the good news of Jesus, man, let it be that we take this posture of, Lord, my heart aches for those who have not tasted of what you have graced me to taste in your forgiveness. Well, what are the points that cause him so much grief? Well, he says in verse 4, this is really what bothers him. He says, man, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, have had so many privileges, so many opportunities, so many beautiful things. He says they've been given adoption, which means God had chosen them to be his people. They've received the glory, which means to say that, that God showed his glory to Israel through the tabernacle and temple. He says they've been received, recipients of the covenants to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Like God made promises to them. They received the law where God revealed himself to them, Paul writes. To them is the worship, the sacrifices, the the promises of God. Like God told Israel first, I would never leave you or forsake you. God told Israel first, I am with you. And those promises were given to them. And Paul's like, man, so much. He says to them is the patriarchs, these these people we look up to. And last of all, he says there in the end of verse 5, To them, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. He's like, to to top it off, the Jewish people were the ones who received the Messiah, who came as a Jewish man. And Paul's like, man, so many privileges and beautiful things been entrusted to us. Side note here, which is not side ultimately, but notice what Paul says about Jesus here. This is one of the most explicit passages that highlights the divinity, the deity, the fact that Jesus is God. He says, again in verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. So, So Paul's like, look, to the Jewish people, all these things have been handed over to them, and yet they've rejected Jesus. You see, what Paul wants us to understand is that you could be oh so close, but yet oh so far. Let me put it this way. It's happened to me on more than one occasion when I'm here in my office studying and I'm working off from my laptop and it's a, it's a MacBook and it's got that little magnetic thing for the charger and I don't charge it initially and I'm, I'm typing away and I realize it gets me an alert, oh, you're at 15%. So I grab my charger and I plug it into my MacBook and I think it's charging but what I don't realize is that like a little pebble has come between the charger, the charger and the actual laptop. So when the magnet comes, it attaches, but it doesn't latch on fully. And I'm typing away, and then I notice it says, your battery life's now at 10%. And I'm like, what's going on? It's plugged in. I look, I take it off, and I realize there's something between the power source and my laptop. There is something inhibiting the laptop from getting the power. But the cord was so close. 
to the laptop. But if it's not fully connected, there is no power. Well, Paul is saying that the Jewish people have been so close to the things of God But there has been something between them and God. There has been a pebble in their soul called unbelief, called non-repentance. I think some of us here today, perhaps, or watching online, might feel a little up close and personal with this assessment. We've got to understand, as we've said before, that proximity to God does not equate salvation to God. Just because you're close to the things that God is doing doesn't mean you are a child of God through faith. And Paul is here. He is seeing his chosen people, his brothers and sisters, who have been so close to all that God has done but rejected them. He's there in anguish. But there's a dilemma he feels. And the dilemma is this, that many have said. Well, if Israel is God's chosen people... How could this be? Do you guys feel the weight of that? Well, Paul goes on in the next verses to make an an important point. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Basically, Paul says, Israel's failure to believe is not God's failure to redeem. Basically, what Paul is saying is this, church. Just because the Jews were Jews by ethnicity, they were children of Abraham by DNA, does not mean they were children of God spiritually. Our ancestry can do a lot of things, but it cannot transfer eternal life to us. And some point in history, the Jewish people lost sight of that fact. And many thought they were good with God because their ancestors were good with God. But ancestry cannot transfer salvation. Salvation can't be transferred, church. But the message of salvation can be transferred. We we can preach the truth, but we can't force people to receive it. Now, we title this sermon series, Doctrine That Dances. And Part of being Latino is dancing. My parents don't dance a lot, therefore it has not been transferred to me either. But there are a lot of things that have been transferred to me. I am Puerto Rican by DNA. And with that have come a lot of cultural habits and things that I hold dear to me that are part of my ancestry. My parents came to faith in Jesus when I was one years old. And at that point, they began to live for Jesus and strive to raise my brother, my sister, and I in his ways. While my parents could transfer to me my Puerto Rican DNA, they could not transfer to me saving faith. But they did transfer to me the message of saving faith. And what Paul is essentially saying here is that it has always been for God's people to be right with him a matter of believing upon God, receiving his promise. Paul gives two examples here. He says, Abraham, this is not all our children of Abraham because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, what Paul wants them to realize is that Abraham had another son before Isaac. 
and that was Ishmael. So through ethnicity, he had two sons. But the promise that God gave to Abraham was not transferred through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Why? Because that's what God chose to do. And everyone who would then come from the line of Isaac had to become children of God through faith in God. Paul gives another example. This time of Rebekah's children through Isaac. Rebekah was pregnant with twins, two sons, one Jacob and one Esau. And Paul says in verse 10, he says, I'm sorry, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. See, while the children were still in her womb, God says Jacob will have leadership over Esau, even though Esau would be the firstborn. This is how God works. And why was that? Because that's what God chose. So not all Israel believed in God, not because God failed to redeem, but because not all Israel was chosen to be redeemed. This is what Paul is telling us here. And he goes on to say in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that sounds really jarring to our ears, doesn't it? We're like, God, what does that mean? Well, that's a quotation of Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi, uh, he's talking not about the specific men, Jacob and Esau, but the nations that come from these men, the Israelites and the nation of Edom or the Edomites, which come from Esau. And essentially, the Bible uses hyperbole like this. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you need to hate your mother and father. Well, he's not saying hate them, hate them. But in comparison to him, they are, that he is to be preferred over them. In the same way, God has said, I have rejected bringing my promises through the Edomites, and I have chosen to bring my promises through the Israelites. Because that's what I have chosen. Now, when we read this, our ears are like, God, this, this is tough to swallow. In fact, we might feel like, God, this doesn't feel fair. Do you feel this? Well, the good thing is you're not the first person to ask that question. In fact, Paul is prepared to address that question. Because look what he says right after that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's like, what should we say? God, that's not fair. Well, Paul's like, all right, let's talk about this. So he says, by no means. We cannot accuse God of injustice. Why? Because he says, he tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All right, so basically what Paul's saying is like, how can God do this? Is this fair? And Paul's like, well, yes, because God has the freedom to do whatever he wants. He can have mercy on whomever he wants and compassion. You know, about uh, several weeks ago, we began to put away our Christmas decorations. I know some of you are all here and still got them up. And I'm saying this story to shame you, yes. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But when we put away our Christmas decorations, you put them away knowing you're going to bring them out in another 11 months. If you throw them into your closet haphazardly, it is a mess come December or right after Thanksgiving. So what we do is we got our storage bins. 
We have the ornament bins. We have the nativity set bins. We have our Christmas tree box. And we put everything back together nice and neatly because that's how we like it. But it never happened to you that you put everything away and then you realized there's one decoration you forgot to put away. And you take that thing and you open the box and there's no space for it anywhere. It just doesn't fit. And it drives you mad because it doesn't fit into your nice and neat box. You see, the Bible is okay with holding tensions together. And church, we have to understand that not everything's going to fit into the nice, neat boxes that we think we deserve to have. We, we, we want it to be nice and clean and no clutter. But God never promised that, actually. God never said, you know what? I'm going to make this all to make perfect sense so that you can understand me, the infinite, immortal, eternal God perfectly. How about that? God's like, there is no box that you can pull out that'll fit what I do. So will you praise me for what you do know and trust me with what you don't? Will you praise me for what you do understand and trust me for what you don't understand? Paul's saying, God is not subject to our standards of fairness. But he's like, hey, but let me try to give, you, give a shot at this. Let me try to make some sense of what's going on here. He uses an example from Pharaoh in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, what is he talking about here? In Exodus chapters 2 through 17 or thereabouts, God has promised to Moses that he's going to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. But in order for God to do that, he's got to get them out of the hands of Pharaoh. Now, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, what's Pharaoh's got to say? No. Because God needs to show his power to Pharaoh. So what's going on in Pharaoh's heart? Well, the Bible tells us in Exodus 8, 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Exodus 8, 32 says, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. But Exodus 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10, 1 says, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart. So when we look at Pharaoh, who hardened his heart? And Pharaoh. And God. And there is a tension there where we see Pharaoh hardened his heart, and we see God say, but I also hardened his heart. You see, no one gets to heaven who doesn't want to be there. This is not the way God works. And no one goes to hell who ultimately really wants to trust in Jesus. How this works is a paradox and a mystery. But God's mercy, church, is not arbitrary, even if we don't understand it. God's mercy is not arbitrary, even if we don't understand it. So we're going to praise him for what we do know and trust him with what we don't. Paul says in verse 18, So, Then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And there he leaves it. 
And then we're like, but what's going on here? Because the next question we have is like, well, then how does God blame Pharaoh? How is it Pharaoh's fault? You with me here still? This is the way we think. But again, you're not the first person to ask that question. So look what Paul says in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But look at verse 30, 20, I'm sorry. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? All right, now Paul's getting us somewhere here. We, we realize these tensions are at play, but this question in verse 19 is accusatory and not searching. It is saying, God, it is your fault. You are the one to blame when people reject. And Paul's saying, who are you to question God? Now, there's a lot of things we'd want to question God about. Like why the male seahorse carries the children into childbearing. That's a weird thing. You might want to question God about how the kangaroos get a pouch and you got to have a sling. Or how the lioness got to carry the baby in her mouth. We might wonder and question God, like, why does the dolphin always get to smile, but the bulldog's always mad and the Dotson's always sad, right? There are things we want to question that we see in the animal kingdom. But we don't get to question God's goodness. We don't get to question God's concern for us. We don't get to take the posture of entitlement like God has to answer to you. That is out of line, Paul tells us. In fact, that's what God tells Job when Job is questioning God and his suffering. Job was an upright man and Job chose to worship God. But make no mistake, Job was not okay with his suffering. Job looked at God and said, God, what are you doing? This is not okay because I loved you. Why would you do this to me? And then God tells Job this in Job 38. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you that you must answer, God tells Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out its surveying line? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Where does light come from? And where does darkness go? Can you teach? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? God goes on to tell Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? And this is what Job says. I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. (laughs) Amen to Job. What Paul is saying, like, look, we've got to search to understand. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But with our mind, there will come things that we're like, God, I just can't grasp that. And God's like, you remember, I'm eternal. You remember, I'm not confined to time and space. You do know I've never started and I'll never end. So it's okay that you don't understand everything I do. Will you praise me for what you do know? And trust me for what you don't? This is the mystery. But the Bible is clear. Paul goes on to say, 
Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, can't the potter reserve the right to make a bowl for silverware, for, 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 for meals, and use another piece of pottery to make a toilet? Doesn't the potter have the right to do whatever he or she wants to with the clay? Paul's saying, that is God. He's the potter. You're the clay. What does this all mean? Well, Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which has been prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's saying this. Yes, God has chosen to save some out of his mercy, and there are others who will be recipients of his wrath. But the very term mercy implies, in its definition, withholding what is deserved. All of us deserve wrath. And God in his mercy has chosen to rescue some of us. In fact, Acts 13, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, the good news, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or how about Philippians 1, 29? For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. You have been appointed. God is the outside force working for your salvation. Now, I know there are a host of questions that follow that. But what I notice here is Paul's not trying to answer all of our questions. But he's saying this is what God has done. Now, I know this is a a tough thing to, to, to wrestle with. But I want us to understand this, church. That for all of us who believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead three days later, if that's what you believe, you are a recipient of God's mercy. And one day, you will stand before Jesus And you will know that you know that you know that were it not for his grace, you would be somewhere else at that moment. You will stand before Jesus and say, I did nothing to get me here. But trust in you. And even that faith is a gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We need to understand that. I shared with you last week that as a young boy, I was about 10 years old when I put my faith in Jesus at a camp in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. But I look back and I think about all the things God did to get me to that camp. He put me in a home where my parents believed in him. He put me in a church that happened to go to that camp in summertime. He gave me a brother who put his faith in that same camp years before. And so I wanted to follow that. He put that counselor there who probably could have been anywhere else that summer working. He did all of it because he had made me an object of his mercy. He made a way. 
Today, when you entered this building, for those of you who are present, you came during the middle of a snowstorm. But you walked on the sidewalk today because some really great brothers showed up early today on their own initiative to shovel for you. <laughs> Thank you, brothers, for doing that. They knew you were coming. And so they pulled out their shovels to make a way. They wanted to clear the path for you to get to that front door. They took the initiative when you didn't even know they were doing it. And you came, walked a pathway from your car to this front door because someone came before you to create a way. When God has chosen to save you, he took the initiative. He pulled out his shovel he sent his son. He cleared away, and you followed him, and you came to the footsteps of the doors of salvation, and there you looked upon the cross where your sin was taken. You saw the empty tomb where your Savior won, and that happened not because you got there, but because God took you there. God says you would be an object of my mercy. So the Bible holds intention, God's sovereignty, and our responsibility in ways we don't all fully understand, but we know them to be true. In this, Paul's like, man, through this God is saving Jews, he has saved Gentiles, he has called in verse 25, people who are not his people, that's you and I who are not Jews, to become his people. God has made us his beloved there in verse 25. He has called us sons and daughters of the living God, verse 26. And of the people of Israel, he has still saved a remnant. God is at work saving people. So church family, we come to passages like these with fear and trepidation. We acknowledge, like, God, we don't fully understand, but we come to you, Lord, to your throne, and we say, God, I'm going to praise you for everything in here that I can wrap my mind around. And where I am lacking, I'm going to trust you because I know your character. God knows what he's doing, church. And for the things we don't understand, let's lean into him. This argument will continue on next week and the weeks after as we get into the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. But I want to say this as we close. Let your posture in all of this be two things. Anguish for those who don't know Jesus and worship for those who do. To have just celebratory heart if you are God's child, and say, God, I praise you for showing me mercy. God, my heart aches for those who don't yet know you. We don't know who God has set aside, but we have been given a mission, a message. And church, let's be motivated to get out there with it. Let's pray. God, we ask today that those whose hearts you are pulling, who would say, God, I know you put your hand on me. I've been resisting you for too long. I've become very close to the power source, but not yet connected. 
there has been unbelief that has separated from me, me from you. Lord, I pray that today they would put their faith in Jesus. God, that they would humble themselves and surrender to you. That they would say, God, I, I, I don't fully understand, but I know this much, that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. God, would there be salvation for people who listen to this sermon today? And God, for your people, God, I pray we would hold your mysteries with an open hand, that we would marvel at them, that we would glory in you, and that we would be about your work, even when we don't understand. God, we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's rise to our feet. God, we want you to make us holy. God, we want you to purify us, to purge us of the things that are not from you, to cleanse us from within. Lord, as we hold up these mysteries, we know, Lord, that you hold us accountable, that we have responsibility to come to you and to ask you to work in us, to put our faith in you, to to lean on you, God, each day. And so, Lord, as we go out today, God, I pray for your children that you would give us strength in all we do. And Lord, I continue to ask that for those who are listening, who have yet to put their faith in you, God, that they would, that their their conscience would, would get at them, that they would have no rest until they respond to you, Lord. Oh God, we pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, the Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. God bless you, Brooke family. It's great to worship with you all today. For those who are watching online, God bless you. We look forward to seeing you all next time.